Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we'll continue that reading up through chapter 3 and verse 4. Let's give careful attention to God's holy word beginning in verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know His will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? 
For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and let's focus our attention this morning upon verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, heart. Here in this chapter, as we've seen, Paul is expounding upon and responding to one of the greatest mysteries in all of human history. And that is the unbelief and impenitence of the Jews. The end of Romans chapter 1, we found the Apostle Paul dealing with Gentiles addressing the fact that they had rejected the clear light of general revelation in creation and conscience. They had suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They had replaced God with an idol, a figment of their own imagination, and ultimately exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And we wrestled with that. I think we came to understand the way in which that is absolutely the case. That though they never had a copy of God's Word, they never had special revelation, perhaps whatever interaction they had with the covenant people of God was so utterly hypocritical that it it caused them to blaspheme God's name, but they didn't have these advantages. And yet, because of creation and conscience, they were held accountable. They were without excuse for their unbelief for 
the increasing sinfulness and depravity and decline that they experienced as individuals and as nations. But when we come to chapter 2, we find something that is utterly astonishing. Because in fact, those who had the clear revelation of God's character, those who had the clear, meticulous revelation of God's moral law, those who had a substantial, robust revelation of God's promises, of God's salvation through the coming Messiah, the Jewish people who had all of these advantages, all of God's ordinances, they had circumcision, they had the Passover, they had it all. They were a kingdom of priests to whom God spoke from Mount Sinai in an audible voice, though He did not give a visual representation of Himself. He spoke. He spoke clearly. And He blessed them with all of these advantages. And you see in the verses that we just read in our Scripture reading, what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. Every advantage. A covenantal silver spoon in their mouth from day one. From day one. To the Jew first. To the Jew first. What an advantage. And we would expect that they would make good on this. We would expect that really the the problem in our heart of hearts maybe the problem with the Gentiles was really God just didn't give them enough. That's the problem with... with, uh, You know, there are many nations today they just... They've never heard of Christ. They don't have a Bible. And Romans 1 says it's be, you know, they're without excuse for these various reasons, but deep down we may be tempted to think it's because they didn't have enough to go on. And maybe they're not accountable. Maybe they won't go to hell for rejecting God and for sinning because really they don't have enough. But here, chapter 2 of Romans says the people who had it all rejected it. So it's not about the amount of information. It's about, as we'll see in a moment, the human heart. And the heart of the Jews was no less wicked and unbelieving and impenitent than the heart of the Gentiles. In fact, you could argue that given how much truth they suppressed, perhaps it was even worse. It's utterly astonishing, really, to think about, even for Paul to think about, as a Jew, Paul is a Jew, He was a Pharisee in the synagogue. He was a Hebrew scholar. Hebrew of Hebrews. Pharisee of Pharisees. For Paul to think about it, how could the Jewish people reject a Jewish Messiah? Think about that. You would think they would be the first. I mean, if if Jesus was Polish, imagine... You know, at the Polish festival. Imagine, I mean, you see how even most cultures today, they try to remake Jesus in their own image. And so in China, it's the Chinese Jesus. In Europe, it's the blue eyed, blonde haired Scandinavian Jesus, the German Jesus, the African Jesus. Um, we try to remake th- those who have embraced something of the gospel, are always trying to remake Jesus in their own cultural, ethnic image. But But Jesus actually is Jewish. Jesus is, according to the flesh, of the seed of Abraham. So you would assume that if the Son of God 
takes on human flesh and he takes on the human flesh of a particular ethnic group and he says, I'm coming specifically, primarily to them first and I'm going to preach a gospel of salvation to the Jew first. I mean, it's unthinkable. Because the fact of the matter is that in Paul's day, as in our own day, it's, it's the Jew that is really the last to receive the Gospel. I mean, if you knock on doors in local communities, you'll find an easier hearing for the Gospel of Jesus Christ in just about every other demographic than the Jew. Oftentimes people will say, well, I'm Jewish. As if that's to say, well, obviously I have no interest. And, it's, and it's, I'm tempted to say, well, what do you mean? Of course, Jesus is Jewish. The Son of God is reigning on a throne at God's right hand right now in a human nature that has descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David himself. It's utterly unthinkable. It's a mystery. That's what Paul says in Romans 11, verse 25. It's a mystery in God's providence that the Gospel would not be embraced first and foremost by the Jewish people. A Jewish Messiah and the Jewish people. He came to His own, but staggeringly, they rejected Him. And that's what you see in chapter 2. Those who really God primed the pump for hundreds, thousands of years, revealing Himself, giving intimations, foreshadowings of the coming Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and yet they rejected Him. You see something of the advantages that, that we're talking about here. Romans 9, verse 4, Paul says that there's great sorrow and grief in his heart. He wishes he could be accursed for the sake of his kinsmen, his brethren, according to the flesh. He says, verse 4, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption. Israel is my firstborn son. God redeemed them from bondage in Egypt. The glory, the special presence of God, the Shekinah glory which dwelt between the cherubim in the tabernacle and in the temple in Jerusalem, in Zion, among the Israelites. The covenants. God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. God's covenants. The giving of the law. To whom did God give His moral law? The law. I mean, this is, this is it. This is the moral law that's still probably somewhere in the south, you know, posted at a courthouse somewhere. Um, this is the law that really in many ways has governed the last 2,000 years of Western jurisprudence. This is the law. It was given to the Jews. It wasn't given to the Europeans. It wasn't given to the Asians. It was given to the Jews on Mount Sinai. What an advantage. What a privilege. The service that is the worship of God. All the ordinances of God. The Lamb of God in the Passover who was to take away the sin of the world, and so on. The promises, the promises of the Messiah who is to come. We, you know, pastors often will try to preach through books of the Bible, and uh, it becomes difficult to preach through certain books of the Old Testament, like the book of Isaiah. 
You get the sense if you start the book of, especially if I was preaching it, but a lot of pastors, they're, they're intimidated because if you start preaching Isaiah, there are so many promises. There are so many revelations of the Lord Jesus Christ in that book. You feel like you'd be in it for 40 years. God gave these promises to His people. They were swimming in promises of the Messiah to come. And He says, of whom are the fathers? So these are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. Of whom are the fathers? And from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Think about the privilege of knowing. Now I'm not trying to go to the extreme here or set one ethnic group over another, but I'm just saying it's unavoidable. The privilege, the privilege for a Jewish person descending from Abraham to say that they actually have a physical connection to the bloodline of God's covenant from whom the Lord Jesus Christ came. I'm not saying that's something to boast in or that's something that saves you, but surely I can, think, I can say if I was Jewish, that would be meaningful to me. That would be something that would drive me to embrace and appreciate what God has done in history all the more. All the more. Well, uh, it's a mystery. It's amazing. Jesus at one point in Nazareth, His hometown, He preached in the synagogue. He marveled at their unbelief. And it's not only that. Once Jesus was rejected and, and staggeringly the Jewish people said, we have no king but Caesar. Unimaginable type of statement. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify Jesus. Crucify Him. Even after that, Jesus rose from the dead. And do you know what He said to His disciples? In Luke chapter 24, verse 47, He said, I want you to go and preach remission of sins and repentance in Jerusalem first. In Jerusalem first. Think about that. And when Paul says it in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Romans to the Jew first, think about that. He's saying to those who crucified Him, Go there first. What does that tell you about the love and mercy of Jesus Christ? That the very first people that He commands His disciples to evangelize and to reveal remission of sins and cleansing, that it's the Jewish people, the people that nailed Him to the cross. Unthinkable. Unimaginable. But that's the fact. To the Jew first. And after that merciful outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the Gospel going forth and thousands of Jews being converted and yet the bulk, the majority rejected it. What could be more utterly astonishing than that? And yet there is something more utterly astonishing than that. It's unbelief in the Christian church. Unbelief in the Christian church is so much more astonishing because we have so much more. Everything the Jews had, we now have the entire New Testament. Yes, Jesus was foreshadowed in the Psalms and in the prophets and throughout the Law of Moses and so on, but we have the Gospels. We have the Epistles. We have the history, the doctrine. We have the hope of the second coming of Christ clearly set forth. We have an understanding of the judgment to come. We have an understanding of so great a salvation. And yet, 
there's unbelief in the Christian church. And we could say in our own day, perhaps it's the case, not trying to throw stones at others, but if you look at the broad evangelical community, you might even make the case that a majority of people who profess to believe in Jesus don't really believe in Jesus and do not have true saving faith and do not have a repentant heart. It's even more astonishing than Jewish unbelief. Paul deals with this in Hebrews 6 verse 4. He speaks of those who were once enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they're brought into the life of the New Testament church. They hear the gospel of salvation proclaimed. They, they have something of an understanding of it. it. It enlightens them. It reveals certain truths to them intellectually that help them to make sense of the world and to make sense of what's right and wrong and make sense of who God is and what the gospel is. They're enlightened. They taste of these things. They experience God is saving people. People are being converted, baptized. People are growing in grace. They see the love that one brother has for another and so on. They see the Holy Spirit working in the life of the church. They taste the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And yet, they fall away. Or in many cases, uh, you think of children growing up in the church, they just, they, it just falls flat. They just, oh, I have no interest. No thank you. And, and they don't repent. And they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. And what he's saying here is the shame, the embarrassment, just the, the utter grief of Jesus being rejected by His own people. They're just rehashing that again and again. He came to His own and His own received Him not. That's true of the Jews. That's true in the Christian church. He comes to His own week by week by week through the preaching of the Gospel. He comes to His own through faithful family worship as your parents instruct you, children. He comes to His own, to His own people, to those who have been set apart as members of His church and of the body of Christ. He comes. He comes to His own and His own receive Him not. It's astonishing. The earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, Paul says, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. The means of grace, the Gospel, all these things, it's like rain coming down to cause that seed to germinate and to, to grow and to be fruitful. That's the design of God's covenant community. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Utterly astonishing, is it not? Well, according to Paul, all such unbelief stems from an impenitent heart. It stems from an impenitent heart. Just getting back to the verse that we said we would be focusing on. Romans 2, verse 5. Why is it that despite God's goodness, despite all these advantages, they haven't come to repentance in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart. That's why. It's their impenitent heart. Literally, that word impenitent is the word repentance with the prefix a or ah, like 
atheist. Theist, somebody who believes in God. Atheist is someone who's not a theist. Well, in this case, it's the word repentance with that A on the front end of it. Not repentant. To repent is to change one's mind and direction. And so it's saying they won't change. They won't change. Uh, And in Greek, this idea of change of mind means a change of thinking. To reconsider. To to think again. They won't reconsider. They've rejected it. They're, They're near to being cursed. And they're being warned. And they're being called to think again. They won't think again. They're stubborn. They won't change. They won't even consider changing their mind and their heart. Impenitent. Unrepentant. Comes from that impenitent heart. And that's important to recognize that the heart of the matter, as they say, is the matter of the heart. All of it hinges upon the human heart. All of these external things, though God uses them as a great spiritual blessing, if it doesn't impact the heart, it is utterly meaningless. And you go through the Old Testament Scriptures and you see people today in the church, they say, well, the Old Testament was about the letter of the law. It was about those stone tablets. And uh, God, you know, it was these stone tablets and Moses going around hitting people over the head with the stone tablets. But the New Testament is about the heart. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You see, the emphasis in the five books of Moses is squarely fixed upon the heart. Though it describes all these outward ordinances and advantages and truths, yes, that's the case. But its emphasis is upon the heart. In fact, I think it's over a hundred times in the law of Moses, it makes reference to the heart. Love me with all your heart, God says. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart. The whole thing is about the heart. In fact, over half of those references to the heart in the law of Moses occur in the book of Deuteronomy. You think, well, Deuteronomy, this is this book about the law. It's a book of Moses' sermons to God's people. It's just a book of sermons. Moses is preaching, and he's preaching to the heart again and again. So the Jewish people should have understood this, that ultimately it wasn't about drawing near with the lips, with your heart far from Him. It was about the heart, heart religion, loving God with our heart, believing from the heart. It's all about the heart. This unbelief stems from their heart problems. And you can see in uh, the end of chapter 2, Paul talks about the true Jew as, as one who has that circumcision occur in his heart. That the flesh is cut off and the heart is set apart in love to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul deals with this in Romans 10, verse 5. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. So if you're going to be saved by your works, you'd better have a perfect life of perfect obedience. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Now he quotes from Deuteronomy. This is Moses. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, 
and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. It's not enough to be in your mouth. Now, it needs to be in your mouth, children. You need to be catechized. You need to have an understanding of God's word, of His truth, so that you can, explain, or so that you can recite it and then explain it as you get older. It needs to be in your mouth. But it's not enough for the Jews to memorize the Shema. It's not enough for them to be catechized in the Old Testament law and the prophets. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Yes, but right after that it says, love Him with all your heart. It's got to be not only in your mouth, but in your heart. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. How are you going to be saved? Are you going to be saved? It all stems back to your heart. That's what Paul is saying. Now, what is the heart? We've talked about this in recent months. It involves the mind and the will. The intellect, the mind. Paul says earlier in Romans chapter 10 that they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So you see these two elements here. They're ignorant of the Gospel. They're ignorant that the Messiah was to come to establish the righteousness that would bring them into reconciliation with God. They're ignorant of God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. But their will is part of the equation. It's not just an ignorance, in other words, but it's a willful ignorance. Why are they ignorant? Well, because they're self-righteous. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. Indeed, when it's proclaimed to them by the Son of God Himself, they crucify Him. Why? Because in their heart, in their will, in their volition, they have a different agenda. They're seeking to establish their own righteousness and they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So it's not just that they were ignorant, but they were willfully ignorant. They were seeking other things and they were not willingly submitting to a Gospel that says, you get none of the glory, God gets all the glory. You supply none of the righteousness, God supplies all of the righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't want a Gospel like that. They rejected it. Their impenitent heart was ignorant and willfully so. They were refusing to reconsider, to think again concerning the Gospel. And repentance is what they needed and repentance is what they loathed and they didn't want to do it. Well, what is repentance? You think of the parable Jesus tells of the two sons. His father tells each of them to go out and accomplish certain tasks. And one of the sons, he says, you know, he refused to go. He refused to go. He's not going to go. He's not going to go do what his father told him to do. He refuses. But later he repented and he went. You see, what it's describing is someone who's made a choice, who is in willful rebellion, but who thinks again. Who reconsiders. He said no, and he went off to wherever he was going, but perhaps as he's on the path to wherever, whatever alternative destination that he had chosen, 
or perhaps while he's engaged in the activity that he was doing, instead of following the command of his father, he, he takes time to think about it. And, he, and it runs through his mind, and, and he, he ponders it, he reconsiders it, he thinks again, perhaps other considerations come into his mind, and he changes his mind, and he changes his direction, and he goes back and does what the father commanded him to do. That is repentance. It's the prodigal son who has gone off to the foreign land, spent all his money, and there he is wallowing in the pigsty, and he comes to himself. He starts to reconsider, wait a second, this isn't exactly working out uh, as I thought it would. This isn't working out. And so I'm going to rethink this. I'm going to rethink, wait a second, maybe I mis-evaluated the situation. Maybe I need to rethink the merits of my father's house and the benefits there. Maybe I need to rethink my situation. That's repentance. It's interesting when Paul went to the city of Berea in Acts 17 verse 10, he found that unlike virtually all of the Jewish synagogues to which he traveled to preach the gospel, these Jews were different. Most of the other synagogues were so impenitent and, and they refused to even begin to reconsider what they'd been taught, to even begin to reconsider how Jesus Christ actually fulfills all of the promises of the Old Testament. But they come to Acts 17, verse 10, and Paul and is it Silas, they're amazed at the difference among the Berean Jews. Listen, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded or noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Now, I realize this reference to the Bereans is so often quoted as if the main point is that when you're hearing a sermon, you'd better, you'd better be skeptical of what the pastor's saying. You'd better write that down and go look up those verses later because that preacher may be pulling the wool over your eyes. We need to be really skeptical to go check to see if what the preacher said is actually true. Now, of course, you should do that, but that's not actually at all the point here or the emphasis here in Acts 17. Um, the Jews would not have been tempted to just take whatever, it, whatever Paul said at face value and just sort of, oh, well, if Paul said it, it must be true. He's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in a synagogue full of Pharisees. So the, the temptation there is not for them to just say, well, Paul said it, I guess it's true, I won't go check it out. The temptation was for them to be impenitent and to refuse to even begin to listen to him. The, the temptation was to take up their psalm books and have a target practice. Okay? Their temptation was to utterly reject without even listening without giving Paul a fair hearing. And it says they were more fair-minded because they actually listened and went back to their Bibles, whatever copies or scrolls of the Bible they had, and they took the time to actually see if this is what the Old Testament actually says. In other words, they were teachable. That's the message of this passage. They were willing to reconsider. And Paul says... 
this unbelief in the covenant community, it comes from a refusal and unwillingness to do that. Now, tragically, nothing is so important but so neglected in our day as the human heart. Nothing is so important and so neglected today as the human heart. Paul's dealing with the fact that this impenitence stems from the heart. We live in a society that focuses on the body. Uh, Bodily appearance, bodily health. It's all about the body, the, the big debates that we have over abortion, you know, whose body is it? What about a woman's body? Woman's right to choose. Vaccines. I need the vaccine to protect my body. No, I don't want the vaccine to protect my body. We debate and we... It's all about the body. We're consumed with a focus upon the body as if there was no immaterial substance to our humanity. As if we were just a body and we did not have a soul or if you will, a heart. Paul's saying your eternal destiny depends upon your heart, not your body. God made both. Both are important. But your soul, and this is not Platonism by the way, your soul is more important than your body. Because as goes the soul, so goes your body. In this life and for all eternity. If your soul is not right with God, your body will burn in hell for eternity. Your soul is more important. Both are important. Both are noble. Both are beautiful. I'm not a Platonist. Neither is the Bible promoting Platonism. But the soul, the heart, drives the bus. It drives the bus. And uh, even in this life, I mean, we can talk about eternity, but... Proverbs 4, verse 23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Your heart, your soul, your immaterial side of your humanity, that is what gives life and animation. What is death? What is the death of the body? It's when the soul is detached and departs from it. You need a healthy heart You need a heart that is not impenitent, but a heart in which Jesus Christ dwells. It's all about the heart. You need to keep your heart. You need to guard your heart. I mean, even if we can start at the basics, you need to believe that you have a heart. Not talking about, you know, the thing that's thumping in your chest. Obviously, we have tons of heart problems today in the physical category. The last 15 years, many more heart problems issues among Americans. The last two years, even more heart problems, but I'm talking about spiritual heart problems. You need to recognize that you have a heart and that it matters what the condition of that heart is. Proverbs 14.30, a sound heart, a healthy heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy, that is an an unhealthy, sinful heart, is rottenness to the bones. So the health of your heart spiritually impacts the health of your body even now, even today. It does that in a number of different ways. Uh, It does that in terms of your attitude. 
Uh, studies have shown that your attitude, if you, if you have a good attitude and you're encouraged and you're not dealing with anxiety and stress, um, this can actually help the healing process of your body. Your attitude impacts your brain chemistry. It impacts your health in countless ways. But also the decisions that you make are made by your heart. Right? So all the decisions that you make that impact your bodily health, and, and I would say probably most of what goes into our bodily health involves decisions that we make. These decisions are not made by your body. They're made by your heart. They're made by your soul. They're made by your will. So if your will is in a bad place and you lack self-control, I mean, it, it, it's, not, it's not my gut that wanted to eat the box of donuts. It was my will. It was my heart. I made a choice with my immaterial aspect. It impacts the health of my body. And uh, as I said, more importantly, it impacts my eternity. It impacts my eternity. It impacts who I am. Can I believe in Christ without a heart of faith? No, I can't. It's with the heart that I believe. Am I lost and dead in transgressions and sins? Why is that the case? Because every thought of my heart is all evil continually. My heart is deceitfully wicked and desperately sick. Who can know it? Jesus says covetousness, greed, murder, theft, violence, all these things flow from the inside out, from the human heart. It's the heart that matters. And according to Paul, an impenitent heart is a willfully hardened heart. According to your hardness and impenitence of heart. In other words, it's hardness of heart that produces impenitence of heart. Hardness. Willful hardness. The word for hardness in Greek here is essentially sclerosis. Sclerosis, which is used in a number of terms, multiple sclerosis, atherosclerosis, all these different words that are difficult to say, but it deals with the hardening of the arteries, the hardening of the organs, and many other aspects as well. It's a, it's a spiritual sclerosis that Paul is referring to here, where our heart, our mind, our will becomes dull. It becomes numb to the things of God. It becomes insensitive. It even becomes resistant and stubborn. And to switch metaphors, stiff-necked. Spiritual sclerosis. We need to taste and see that the Lord is good, but we can't taste it. And we can't see it. Or better said, we won't. We won't see it. We won't taste it. Uh, It's a willful hardening of our heart against the things of the Lord. And a number of passages help to illustrate what this means, hardness of heart. But one classic text is Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Uh, God says to Isaiah, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return or repent. Repent and be healed. 
Then I said, Lord, how long? How long? What's this saying? It's saying that we can listen to the Word of God read, preached, sung, day in and day out. Go on. Keep on hearing. Keep on seeing. But we're not understanding. We're not receiving it. We're not perceiving it. We're becoming dull. In fact, what's happening is we're becoming so familiar with it that we hear the Gospel message again and again. We hear sin preached against. Our sin. Our anger. Our greed. Our self-reliance and self-righteousness. Our prayerlessness and rejection of God and self-absorbed whatever. We hear it like water off a duck's back. It doesn't impact us. Our conscience has been seared. It's been hardened. It's been dulled. Our ears are heavy. Our eyes are shut. And we don't repent. We don't return. And we're not healed. Why? Because we just, we just get so used to it. It, it. We get so tired of it. We hear it again and again and again. That's a hard heart. That's an insensitive, even resistant heart. And this is something that although it results from our depravity of nature, which we inherit from our father Adam by nature, the fact is that we are complicit in it. Zechariah 7 verse 11, but they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Notice that. You can't hear. Why? Because you won't hear. Because you stopped your ears. Therefore you couldn't hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. They hardened their heart like flint and they treasured up wrath for the day of wrath. That's a willfully hardened Heart, And we can be hardened to a number of things. We can be hardened to the Word of God. We can be hardened to the Word of God, which Psalm 19 says is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. It's more valuable than gold. It rejoices the heart. But when we have this heart problem, this hardened, impenitent heart, it's just boring. We're not like Josiah who heard the law of God and was convicted because the Lord says he had a tender heart. Instead, our heart is is dull and numb and insensitive. Unlike the hearts of the believers on the road to Emmaus where they heard Christ expounding the Scriptures even though they didn't recognize His physical form as Christ. In other words, they heard the voice of Christ but it seemed like it was coming from somebody else just like you hear in the preaching of the Word. But it says that their hearts burned. Did not our hearts burn under the Word of God? Well, my friends, the Bible tells us that there are different ways in which our heart can be hardened to the Word of God. Jesus tells the parable of the sower. There's the the, the wayside soil on the fringe of the field, the walking path, and the person's heart is trampled underfoot and hardened. 
And when the seed comes, it doesn't even get an inch under the soil. And my friends, we can be hardened by the sins of others trampling us underfoot. We can be hardened on the fringes, unwilling to come into the field, on the, out there and on the outskirts and the fringes, afraid to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, trampled underfoot by men, and the seed just sits on the surface and we harden ourselves against it. Jesus says there's other kinds of hard hearts where the seed comes and it gets down a few inches into the topsoil. It's planted in a shallow way. The person receives it with joy. There's some kind of conversion hysteria. But it doesn't last. The heart inside is hard and unreceptive to the religion. Uh, or There's religion on the outside, but not heart religion on the inside. So whether you're hardened on the outside, and you would just flat out say, I don't believe this stuff, or whether you're hardened on the inside, and the seed of the Gospel has never really gotten underneath beyond the intellectual stuff, beyond your opinions and your beliefs and your worldview. It's never gotten into your heart and caused you like Josiah to weep over your sin, caused you to have a sense of sorrow and a desire for Christ and cling to Christ from the heart. This is, this is tragic. This is tragic. And there, there's so much more, God willing, that we're going to talk about this evening, but I want to say this, your only hope is a heart transformation. Your only hope is that God, through your circumstances and through His Word, though you're dulled to its effects at the moment, that He would change your heart. That you would be born again to see in all of its beauty and glory the kingdom of God. That you would have a wounded heart. Acts 2, Peter preached to the Jews that they were hard-hearted, but he confronted them for their sin of rejecting and crucifying Christ, and they were cut to the heart. They were wounded to the heart. They were convicted of their sin. You need a broken heart. Psalm 34, 18 t- tells us that God draws near to those with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. To those with Isaiah who say, Woe is me, for I am undone. You need an open heart. You need an open heart surgery. Lydia, Acts chapter 16. Paul preached and she was a a Jewish proselyte. And the Lord opened her heart. Opened wide the gates of her heart. And the Gospel came in. You need a new heart. Ezekiel 36 God says, I'll sprinkle you with clean water. I'll cleanse away all your sin, your idolatry. I'll take out your old heart of stone and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. Pharaoh hardened his heart and Pharaoh was destroyed. You need a new heart if you're to be saved. And the problem is that you can't actually perform that open heart surgery on yourself. You can't do it. You can't perform open heart surgery on yourself physically. Um, I don't think that's ever been done. And spiritually, it's never been done either. You can't actually perform this surgery on yourself. You can't change your heart. The leopard can't change. The Bible says in, in Jeremiah 13, 23, the leopard 
has those beautiful spots. I don't know why he'd want to change them, but if he wanted to, he can't change them. It says the same with the Ethiopian and his skin. Can't change it. We can't change who we are by nature. But my friends, if we're to have our hearts broken and replaced and transformed, it has to be something that God Himself does. Now, how does God do that? And here's the thing. Very often, the way that God breaks our hearts is by the reality that we are helpless and at His mercy. So many of the great revivals of the past have been grounded in these two doctrines, that I am a sinner condemned and that I am a sinner who is not only condemned for the guilt of my sin, but I am helpless and unable to change my own heart, unable to circumcise my own heart, unable to born again myself. I can't do anything to change my impenitent heart of unbelief. But my friend, that helplessness is what God uses to break your heart. God says, my word, is it not like a hammer to break in pieces the rock? Is it not like a fire to melt your heart? Jeremiah 23.29 God's word and specifically the truth of your inability to change your heart is the means that the Holy Spirit often uses to break that heart because you're forced to cast yourself in utter dependence and humility upon God Himself and to cast your burden upon the Lord and to cast yourself into your hands, I commit my spirit to say, Lord, I cannot change my heart and to simply surrender yourself. It's that inability that God, the Holy Spirit, often uses to empower the ability to believe and to repent. So meditate upon it. You say, but what, what must I do to be saved? And I'm closing because the minute hand just hit the six there. Um, what must I do to be saved? Well, Psalm 95, which we sang, does command you. It's not as though the doctrine of your total inability causes you simply to, to sit on your hands. But there's an active dependence here. Psalm 95 says, Today if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. So that's a command to you. You say, I don't have a heart of faith. My heart is rebellious. My heart is wicked. Yet here, the Holy Spirit speaks to those who are in rebellion and says, today if you will hear His voice, do not harden your heart. So there is a command to you. Very briefly, you're to hear His voice. You need to get in the Word of God. You need to be listening to sermons. You need to be reading your Bible. You need to be talking to Christians who know their Bible. You need to today hear His voice. His voice, His Word is the hammer that breaks your heart. It is the fire that melts that cold heart. He goes on to say, don't follow in the footsteps of your fathers who tested me. Don't test Him. Don't evaluate God. Believe Him. Trust Him. Trust in His promises. Don't go astray in your heart, as the text says. Don't go astray in your heart. Draw near to Him. 
Those who draw near to me, God says, I will draw near to you. James 4 verse 8. Draw near to him, meditating upon his word, trusting in his promise. Because just as surely as he swore in his wrath that unbelievers would not enter his rest, my friends, even just as surely he has sworn in his love that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. Disbelieve, you shall be damned. He's sworn in an oath. It's absolutely certain. It's written in stone. But just as surely, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall enter His rest. Indeed, He says, come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And He says, I will. I shall. I absolutely, by the oath from all eternity in the covenant of redemption, if you come to God through Christ, He will give you rest. And He'll take away your sin and He'll inhabit your heart both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are amazed at the evil of our own hearts. We can't even begin to fathom. There's evil in our hearts that we haven't even plumbed the depths to discover. You know our hearts. You search the heart and the mind. And we thank You that You are greater than our heart. And indeed, that we can call upon Your name knowing that You have redeemed us through the blood of Jesus Christ. That You take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that beats for You. And that once we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we have that blessed assurance that Jesus is ours. We pray, O God, that You would enable and produce hearts of faith and repentance here today for Your own honor and glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.